The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. Anyone Can Whistle was produced in 1964. It took 33 backers auditions to raise the money for the show longer than the run the show had. The premise was a fanciful story about a small, economically depressed American town whose venal mayoress gets the bright idea of arranging a fake miracle to attract tourists. The tourists arrive, but they become intermixed with the inmates of the local cookie jar, a rest home for nonconformists. Farcical complications ensue. Arthur Lorenz, who was a collaborator from West Side Story, and Sondheim share a fondness for whimsy. Anyone Can Whistle was an attempt at sociopolitical satire in a freewheeling form, perhaps even the first absurdist musical. It exhibits the strengths and dangers of the genre. Imagination and cleverness, which too often, instead of enriching each other, draw attention to themselves. Lawrence was also the director of the show, which should have been a red flag. It meant that one vision emerged with no outsider to contradict or challenge the work, and so the vision for the show turned out to be myopic. Lawrence and Sondheim, you might say, had courage, but lost perspective. For those of us from the outside, maybe it is good to remember that even genius can go awry and learn from the wrong turns. For Sondheim, gra grounded in the lessons in his Williams theater classroom, and that notion that talent was something that was developed, the risking and the learning and the evolving was part of the challenge and the journey of the work and life that he loved. Stephen Sondheim had a difficult relationship with his parents. They divorced when he was a child and his mother was cruel and mentally unhealthy, once telling him that the thing she regretted most in her life was having him. It was about the time of the divorce when Stephen was about 10 years old that he became friends with James Hammerstein. James was the son of lyricist and playwright Oscar Hammerstein II, the elder Hammerstein would become a surrogate father to Stephen and not surprisingly a mentor who profoundly influenced the young boy's love of musical theater. In one well-known story, Sondheim writes a musical while in high school and it's a huge success among his peers. Not telling Hammerstein of who the author is of the piece, Sondheim shows the older man the score and Hammerstein says, it is the worst thing he's ever seen. 
But, he says, if you want to know why it's terrible, I will tell you. The two then spent the rest of the day going over the musical, and Sondheim would later say, in that afternoon, I learned more about songwriting and musical theater than most people learn in a lifetime. The young artist was also shaped by his time at Williams College, where he attended, attracted by their theater program. His first teacher there was Robert Barrow. Sondheim writes of Barrow's influence. Barrow made me realize that all my romantic views of art were nonsense. I'd always thought that an angel came down and sat on your shoulder and whispered in your ear, da-da-da-da-dum. It never occurred to me that art was something worked out. And suddenly it was the skies opening up. As soon as you find out what a leading tone is, you think, oh my God. What a diatonic scale is, oh my God the logic of it, and of course, what that meant to me was, well, I can do that, because you don't just know it. You, you think it's a talent. You think you're born with this thing. What I found out and what I believed is that everybody is talented. It's just that some people get it developed and some don't. The next song we'll hear is from Merrily We Roll Along. The musical is an adaptation of a play told about three friends that begins the play at the end of their story, or one end of their story, and works its way back through time. It starts with us seeing songwriter and film producer Frank Shepard at a party in his plush LA home after a big premiere. It begins with Frank basking in fame and sycophantic praise, but divorced, estranged or distanced from his son whose graduation he has just missed for no apparently good reason, accused by a good friend, Mary, who's at the party of selling out his gift for songwriting for commercial success. And the play moves backwards to a point where we see Frank's marriage and backwards till the play ends with him as a young college graduate full of promise and hope and ideals. In the song, Not a Day Goes By, Sondheim plays with form. The reprise sung today is sung second in the musical, but written as the complete song. The earlier song, shortened and bitterly sung by Frank's ex-wife in the first act. This song, a second act highlight, is sung in its reprise as Frank and Beth are just married, singing to each other. Mary, Frank's colleague, sits aside alone, singing to herself. The effect of splitting up the words to the three characters adds several dimensions of storytelling not possible in a solo redux. 
Thusly, the song is used in three ways. First, angrily in the first act, disillusionment as the theme. Second, as a love song full of promise. And in contrast by Mary, the lovelorn destined never to score her guy. What launched Stephen Sondheim was West Side Story, which debuted in 1957 when he was 27 years old. Most of us know it as an iconic, memorable, singable, powerful musical that's part of the canon of American musical theater, commented on so many dynamics then and now still present in American society, took on race and cultural, cultural friction, and a remake, of course, of the timeless story of love, tragic love, told first by Shakespeare in Romeo and Juliet. Who would imagine then that Sondheim didn't entirely want to do the project and didn't entirely love doing it? He auditioned for Leonard Bernstein, but Bernstein only wanted Sondheim to write the lyrics. Sondheim wanted to write music and lyrics. The fact is, and still is, Sondheim would later say that I enjoy writing music much more than lyrics. So. Sondheim consulted with his mentor, Hammerstein, who said, as Sondheim related in 2008, when he did a video interview with the New York Times, Hammerstein said, look, you have a chance to work with very gifted professionals on a show that sounds interesting. And you can always write your own music eventually. My advice would be to take the job. Sondheim would do so, and he would have two regrets after accepting West Side Story. First, that it tagged and then dogged him with the label lyricist. And second, that many of the lyrics for West Side Story suffer from a self-conscious effort to be what Leonard Bernstein would deem poetic, which is to say the voice in the lyrics wasn't fully Sondheim's. I knew throughout, Sondheim would later say, I was collaborating with someone whose idea of poetic lyric writing was the antithesis of mine. Collaborating with Arthur Lawrence, Leonard Bernstein, composer, Jerome Robbins, director, and eventually Harold Prince, producer, what Sondheim learned his biggest takeaway from working on West Side Story was how much he needed a collaborator. I have to work with someone, someone who can help me out of the writing holes, someone to feed me suggestions, someone I can feed in return. To be part of a collaboration is to be part of a family. And absent parents, a kid who grew up without any sense of family, every new show provides me with one. It may be temporary family, but it always gives me a solid sense of belonging to something outside of myself. Sondheim would go on to create great music always out of this generative collaboration, though the partners in it would vary. They included people like Harold Prince and James Lapine. Both of the songs we are about to hear are love songs, but different. The first from West Side Story is about the love, the only true love, 
strong and steadfast, but which ends tragically. The second song from Company by Bobby, again, is when he's caught up in this moment of seeing all of love's possibilities as it exists in all of his friends, girlfriends, and wives, but without any reality of it in his own life. It's a song, though, that ends in a more hopeful place. Both are not love songs, then, that center in ideals or shiny happy endings or simplified truths. Sondheim almost always prefers to depict life in this way, connecting in real ways to the real experience of the human condition and situation. One only has to go back to his childhood to have a clue as to why any romanticized, simplified, mythologized vision of love in particular might not feel so honest to him or healing. And music might be a chance, among other things, for honesty. It's always interesting to read about the life and some of the behind the scenes of a person whose work you admire. And always better when what you find there is wisdom and, like Sondheim, joy and passion in all they're doing of it all. Sondheim doesn't sound like Frank Shepard, his character, who lost himself, betrayed his gift, alienated love and loved ones. In other words, like someone who left a trail of carnage in exchange for some fame or fortune. Of course, like all artists, I'm sure Stephen Sondheim did more than one show he didn't want to, more than one project that left him a little hollow or with some regrets. West Side Story wasn't the only one he talks about or writes about with mixed feelings. And I imagine sometimes you just have to pay the bills. And that's life. But lovely to read about someone who hangs on to the rudder through life, its temptations, its storms. Maybe part of what helped him to do that was the lens that Stephen Sondheim brings to his work, as he did in the last two love songs we just heard, that honesty he has. How often, Mark Sumner observed, you'd hear or read an interview with Stephen Sondheim, and he would start by saying one thing, and by the end of the interview, he would have affirmed the complete opposite of what he said and affirmed at the beginning. Stephen Sondheim seemed immersed in life's both ands, its paradoxes and irony. And maybe that perspective served him well in life. It certainly is part of what many of us love about his art, how it lets us be human. As poet Walt Whitman famously wrote in Song of Myself, do I contradict myself? Very well then, I contradict myself. I am large, I contain multitudes. And Whitman echoing, in his words, those of Ralph Waldo Emerson, who said, speak what you think now in hard words, and tomorrow speak what tomorrow thinks in hard words again, though it contradicts everything you said today. 
These were people who, like Sondheim, I think, saw the self as evolving, always. And that our growth happened when we faced ourselves and the world without fear. And truth, truth was there when we made our peace with the complicated, contradictory depths we might discover. And knowing that this is where the messy, examined life, full throttle, engaged, alive, inevitably would take us, as it had all the bold people who had gone before us. There's a lot of humanity in that vision of life, and a lot of truth, and a lot of grace. So maybe not surprising that for a man for whom life was never simple, never easy, never predictable, at least not for long, that when it came time to tell a fairy tale, that too was going to be complicated and layered. Into the Woods was a mashup of grim fairy tales. Sondheim joined collaborative forces again with James Lapine and he predicted that this musical was going to have a long life, appealing to school productions and amateur theaters and professional ones too. I'm surprised to say I was right, he would later say about Into the Woods. It's a show in which everything a character knows is also a little bit not, to quote Red Riding Hood where there are giants in the sky, big, tall, terrible, awesome, scary, wonderful giants in the sky, where you head out into the woods and are shown things, valuable things, that you hadn't known before. And it is scary and exciting and you learn nice is different than good. And you're glad you're changed by what you come to know, but also learning all that you come to know, it means the loss of a little bit of innocence, and that is complicated. Which is to say again, we see life's honest truths Messy, complicated, and Sondheim's honest fairy tale mashup. And maybe it helps us understand our own lives a little more. And also, whenever we recognize our own lives reflected through art, through his art, maybe we know in an embodied sense in those moments that we are not alone, that no one is alone. St. Augustine said, he who sings prays twice. So let's bring today's service toward its close with a prayer, which is to say, let's sing. 
I invite you to sing another memorable and true song from Into the Woods, Children Will Listen. The words are in your order of service, but maybe you already know them by heart. The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.